Last week, we uh, began a series called uh, Rhythm of Gra- Rhythms of Grace, and just trying to learn to live in a rhythm. And um, we're, we're going to look at two main passages this morning, Ecclesiastes 3 uh, and then Psalm 88. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Ecclesiastes 3. Um, if not, it'll, it'll be on the screen. Um, but... Um, Let's just kind of jump into these, and then we'll, we'll, we'll move into this. Ecclesiastes 3, for everything there is a season, a time for every activity under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant, a time to harvest, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to cry and a time to laugh, a time to grieve and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to turn away. A time to search and a time to quit searching. A time to keep and time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be quiet and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. You know, for most of uh, my life, I uh, don't know that I've really ever paid a whole lot of attention to the fullness of the truth of Ecclesiastes 3. For everything, there is a season. For everything. Now, in the natural world, that's obvious. The earth moves in in a rhythm of seasons. We have hot and cold. We have work and play. We have light and dark. We sow, we reap. We have fruit and we have bareness. But... You know, I don't think any of those things lack in being self-evident. But Ecclesiastes is talking about a whole different kind of seasonality. Life's seasons. Life's inevitable tilting of back and forth. Existence is seasonal and our hearts know it. Our hearts taste the excitement and the leisure of summer, the industry and the urgency of fall, the bleakness and the loneliness of winter the busyness and the expectancy of spring. Um, I don't know that I've ever developed a spirituality that corresponds with the seasons of the earth. Uh, Seasonal chores, yes. I mean, there's weed-eating time, grass-cutting time, leaf-blowing time, gutter-cleaning time, snow-shoveling time. But no equivalent ways of adapting necessarily our spiritual life, our prayer, our worship, and listening to God to the seasons of our soul. Winter, for many, can only be seen as bleak, cold, dark, and fruitless. It is a time of forced inactivity, unwelcome brooding, more night than day. It can be harsh, unrelenting, grim, seemingly endless. Most things are dead in winter, or at least they appear to be mostly dead in winter. Many want to run from winter. In the South, we have a thing called snowbirds. Snowbirds are people that live in the North, Michigan, in those types of areas, Ohio. And as winter begins to approach, they migrate down to South Alabama, Northwest, or South Florida to live during the wintertime. Um, They... In an attempt to disavow the reality of winter, uh, because they want to conduct activity in blatant defiance and outright denial of winter, so they go to where there is little to no winter, 
And then they vacate the premises when heat and humidity return. But kind of like summer, darkness and shivering cold, summer has the heat and the humidity. We keep trying to escape one or the other. Now, grief and loss can add up in our lives, and we may press on and keep going like it's not a big deal, but the reality is is that we know that grief and loss are big deals. And if you don't deal with it, your body will force you to deal with it. It's foolish to plant corn in January. It's foolish to transplant shrubs in July. Each season has suitable tasks that can be done, required duties, necessary constraints concerning the earth's cycles. I think we all get that. But it's taken me almost 50 years to grasp the reality in relation to my own heart. A series of deaths of loved ones and close friends can plunge us into a winter that is deep and long And at some point, you can't keep running from it anymore, and you have to face the season of difficulty. There's nothing to do but enter it and to learn its lessons. For everything, Ecclesiastes 3 says, there is a season. In the North American church culture, I don't think we've grasped that for everything, there is a season. Somewhere, somehow, we have adopted and perfected a model of activity-based spirituality. In other words, the more you do, the holier you are. The more events you attend, committees you sit on, seminars you go to, you're seen or perceived as having it all together. But we all know that that is a myth. The more mature and alive your faith must be has been determined by how involved you are. But that's a theory, and not a well-versed theory. I have started and noticed a positive correlation. Well, not always, but once in a while, between busy people and empty people. I have observed that at times and sometimes, Activity can be as much of an invasion of and diversion from God as an act of worship to God. I saw that saying yes, yes, yes can be as unholy as blasphemy if your season is to be one of waiting, listening, and relinquishing. Early on in my faith life and since becoming a pastor 27 years ago, which doesn't seem possible, I unthinkingly adopted that model because that's what you're handed. You're handed an activity-based spirituality. So like most, you rejoice when someone or anyone did more, said yes more, signed up for more, or showed up more. Now they're getting it. Now that is not an excuse for you not to show up, just so you know. (laughs) But what I saw... When I looked into the lives of those people is that not only were they getting tired and cranky and whiny and honestly, less and less Christ-like. So I sat and I thought and I pondered and I have for quite some time and I realized that activity-based models of spirituality is deeply flawed. 
It's not derived from the scriptures. It's derived from the North American get-her-done and pragmatism culture that we live in. From the lure of the frontier, from our lift-yourself-up-by-your-bootstrap mentality and ethic, God only helps those who help themselves thinking and creed, which, by the way, is not true. Our spiritual maturity tends to be measured by busyness. But Scripture's measure of maturity is not busyness, but fruitfulness. And just because you're busy doesn't mean that you're fruitful. You may turn fruity, but you may not be fruitful. A season of rapid growth implies a season of long dormancy. Before a thing wakes up, it sleeps. Before a branch can ever become thick with leaf and fruit, it first must be stripped to its bones. Ecclesiastes 12, though describing the winter of life, also provides an accurate depiction of the winter of the heart. Two details in particular stand out in the Ecclesiastes 12 passage. We won't look at it, but Ecclesiastes 12.1, the, the writer says, I find no pleasure. The winter of life and the winter of the heart share this in common. Pleasure becomes bankrupt when you're in a season of winter. Things we once craved and relished, now we avoid and despise. The food we savored, the friendships we treasured, the activities we cherished, none of those give us what we used to get from them. And there's also now a sense of weariness and disgust at the thought that I have to keep doing whatever activity. And then in Ecclesiastes 12 and 8, the writer says, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. The winter of life, the winter of the soul, the winter of the heart, all share this in common. Meaning becomes bankrupt. Things we once found captivating and stimulating, rich with meaning, now we see as futile and bewildering. The trips we used to take, the art we once pondered, the books we loved to read, the subjects we delighted to talk about, winter casts them as dullness and drudgery. We go from a purpose-driven life to a purpose-starved life. Everything is leached of significance, ambition, accomplishment, aspiration, beauty, courage. None of it means what it used to mean when we're in the wintertime of the soul and the heart and the mind. You've been there? There's this thing that happens when we wait in winter. Psalm 88 I didn't put it on the screen because I just want you to listen, but if you have a Bible app or a Bible, you can turn there. Psalm 88 reads like this, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out to you by day. I come to you at night. Now hear my prayer. Listen to my cry. For my life is full of troubles and death draws near. I am as good as dead like a strong man with no strength left. They have left me among the dead, and I lie like a corpse in a grave. I am forgotten, cut off from your care. You have thrown me into the lowest pit, into the darkest depths. Your anger weighs me down. Wave after wave, you have engulfed me. And then there's this little word that says interlude or selah. 
It's like that he is so burdened and so weary by what's going on in his life. Before he can write another word, he has to step back and take a break, catch his breath, pause to consider what he's going through. He picks up, you have driven my friends away by making me repulsive to them. I am in a trap with no way of escape. My eyes are blinded by my tears. Each day I beg for your help. Oh Lord, I lift my hands for you for mercy. Are your wonderful deeds of any use to the dead? Do the dead rise up and praise you? And then there's that word again, interlude, as he ponders where he is. Can those in the grave declare your unfailing love? Can they proclaim your faithfulness in the place of destruction? Can the darkness speak of your wonderful deeds? Can anyone in the land of forgetfulness talk about your righteousness? Oh, Lord, I cry out to you. I will keep on pleading day by day. Oh, Lord, why do you reject me? Why do you turn your face from me? I have been sick and close to death since my youth. I stand helpless and desperate. Before your terrors, your fierce anger has overwhelmed me. Your terrors have paralyzed me. They swirl around me like the flood waters all day long. They have engulfed me completely. You have taken away my companions and loved ones. Darkness is my closest friend. Boy, that was a happy, cheery psalm, wasn't it? Walter Brueggemann, who is a pretty adept scholar, says, This psalm is an embarrassment to conventional faith. He says, what is a psalm like this doing in our Bible? Layman's terms of what Brueggemann is saying is this, that Psalm 88 gives us a language to turn to, an ability to answer in our own words when we have wrenching sorrow, and that wrenching sorrow turns into raw prayer. Sorrow wants to render us mute. Psalm 88 gives voice to what is most angry and most grief-stricken and frightened within us. It allows us to break our silence even when God refuses to break His. You've been there? It does that first by describing what the winter of the heart feels like. This psalm is not some cool, clinical, dispassionate, detached listing of symptoms. It's raw grief and raw anger. It's a diary of confession, a soliloquy of complaint from one racked with pain. It's a testimony wrung out from a broken heart. It's the howl of a man in the throes of an agony so excruciating that it is like death to him. For many, for many, not all, but many, Winter is when our knowledge about God and experience of God are separated by a frozen continent. Our theology and our reality are irreconcilable. Excuse me. From the very start of the psalm, the psalmist affirms the most beautiful, exquisite, enduring theological truth about God there is, O Lord, the God who saves me. He recognizes that there's only one And then it takes a sharp downward turn into despair. Verses 10 and 12 have a steady drumbeat of God's attributes, his wonders, his love, his faithfulness, and his righteousness. There's nothing shaky or vague or half-baked in the psalmist's doctrine of God. However, his experience and his doctrine bear little resemblance. You been there? 
What he tastes and sees of God mocks what he confesses and proclaims about God. His reality taunts his creed. He experiences not God's wonders and love and faithfulness, but in his words, God's rejection and anger and indifference. At every turn, he's he's met with more bad news, sorrow upon sorrow, trouble upon trouble, loss upon loss, darkness eclipses light, sadness consumes joy, despair overtakes hope. He experiences a God who simultaneously abandons him and punishes him in his mind a God of apathy and wrath, a God who hides himself and only shows up to express his anger. And yet, the man prays anyway. Day and night, he prays. He cries out. He calls out. He spreads his hand to heaven. I mean, don't miss this. It is in the wintertime. When our heart is heavy, that's when we pray according to what we know, not what we see. He is making, making statements about God that he has known for some time, even though his reality doesn't bear out what he says he believes. This season of, that he's in grows almost out of nothing, but, but what it does grow within him, it grows large and magnificent because his faith is growing. And when we're in a season of winter, when things aren't going the way we long for, and when we feel the loss and the heaviness, we will either despair or we'll sit in the winter and let God do his great work of growing us. But that's a hard season. Winter. Winter is for the ultimate cultivation of of biblical faith. It is the season in which we nurture a certainty of things hoped for, an assurance of things unseen. It's where we walk by faith and not by sight. Now, I probably, like you, can attest in the mild winters of the heart, I've endured those in my life. That as awful as such seasons are, there's no better ground for growing and abiding faith, the kind of faith that can weather the worst life can throw at you, Now, we're going to talk about seasons. We'll talk about spring and summer and fall next week. But as delightful and fertile as summertime of the heart is, it is almost useless for growing faith. Think about this. When you want someone to pray for you, when you're going through something so horrible, so overwhelming, I'll bet you instinctively seek those who have endured many long, hard, dark winters people who have some seasons under their belt, some people who have tracked through some really difficult times. Those are, the faith, those are the people of faith with the character of God that has been grown within them that's not subject to whim or mood. You know they're grounded. The discipline of winter that we find ourselves in is waiting We pray, we call out, we cry out, we spread our hands. We feel like God doesn't show up. Waiting, waiting is the terrible gift we learn. But as Isaiah tells us, those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. There's a loneliness about winter. The psalmist describes another feeling he experiences during his winter. 
He talks about a terrible, terrible loneliness. Psalm 88, 8 and verse 18, it says this, you have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. You have taken my companions and loved ones from me. The darkness is my closest friend. In other words, he feels abandoned. He feels rejected. He feels isolated. You've been there? These are the experiences of the heart in winter. You feel friendless. You even feel this way when you're in a crowd. You could be at church, a Bible study, a wedding, a reunion, or wherever. Even if many people surround you, you feel estranged, unknown, and unloved. You've been there? Wintertime. The psalmist gives us no hint about what to do with that feeling. But he says something that points to a truth that only those whose faith is grounded in resurrection hope can understand. He says his closest friend is darkness. Now that is meant to be a statement of hopelessness. But how could it be hopeless for people of the resurrection? No moment in history was darker than the day after Good Friday. No day ever seems so devoid of light or the comfort of others. There were two disciples in Luke's gospel that walked towards Emmaus. And though they walked together, they were actually walking alone. Pondering the events that had happened, darkest, darkness was their companion. And then they were joined by a third person, a man whose presence at first seemed annoying intrusive into the isolation of their gloom and depression. But as he spoke, their hearts slowly warmed with a strange conviction. And then, just as night came, so did day. Because it was Jesus walking with them. And Jesus walked alongside them in the darkest of dark, the loneliest of loneliness. All their hopes and dreams are shattered. It's curious that Jesus didn't announce who he was from the moment he began his journey with them. He only revealed who he was as he was departing. That's often the shape of winter. The Christ who meets us and walks with us all along doesn't reveal his true identity until we arrive at where we're going. Why? I mean, why not whisk us out of the darkness and aloneness sooner? Why does God wait? Boy, isn't that the question of all questions? My guess is, is that because winter is for pruning. It is that time we submit in silence and naked aloneness to let Christ do his great work of vine dressing he is the one who cuts those parts of us that no longer bear fruit, those parts that are dead and dying and need to be taken away so the parts in our heart that need the most blood, the most oxygen can more readily get it. He cuts the death out of us just like he does a tree whose branches have rotted. If you're in the darkness, if you're in the loneliness of winter, it's one thing to tell you not to do something, but let me encourage you 
to desperately try not to resent or resist God's pruning. Because it's a time when he makes more, more health within you, even though it's hard to see. It's a time when he takes more away from you. And it seems that he's not giving you as much as he's taking away. But each cut, which seems a deprivation, is really a cultivation. He's sculpting you to bear more fruit. He's sculpting you to bear more fruit. But there's a sting of death in winter also, isn't there? The last thing, according to Psalm 88, the winter of the heart feels like death. Because death haunts us and taints and surrounds and threatens. And the psalmist describes it in the most vivid, sometimes lurid terms throughout the psalm. He says, my life draws near the grave. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am set apart with the dead like the slain who lie in the grave. In other words, he says, winter is awful. Everything's dead, or at least it appears so. You look at a tree in winter, and it's almost impossible to believe it will be thick with blossoms and abundant with leaves, laden with fruit again. Because right now, in the winter, it's barren and dark and ugly because there is a deadness to the winter of our heart and soul. Winter is when your heart can be so closed up that you can't imagine it ever opening again. When your dreams are so buried and seized, and you can't conceive of them flowing and flowering ever again. You've, you find no pleasure or no meaning in much of anything. Here again, though the psalmist has no answer to this plight, those who follow a risen Savior are not without recourse. The Apostle Paul went through his own Psalm 88 experience, but he has a much different outlook. 2 Corinthians 1 tells of, of Saul, Paul's own dark night of the soul, if you will. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. Winter. about the sentence of death. And then look how he closes it in verses 9 and 10. But this happened. That we might not rely on ourselves, but on God. He is the pruner. He is the one that cuts the death away. Not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Resurrection, hope. But not just resurrection hope after we die. Resurrection hope now when we are in the throes of winter. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. Paul will go on in 2 Corinthians to, to disclose the full value of his winter of the heart. Here is finally the great gift that the winner of the heart alone is able to give us. It makes us heavenly minded. And I'm not talking about heavenly minded when, oh, we're going to die and we're going to go to heaven. Uh, that, that's missing the point now. 
It's that we live in the power of the resurrection now. Filled with the Holy Spirit, we find hope because he has not deserted us, but we may be in that season of winter where he's pruning us. But after the pruning and the cultivating, that's when new life comes within us. It breaks our addiction to the ways of this world and it nurtures in us an anticipation of things not yet seen. We begin to long not for death, but for what takes death's sting away. It's true we're not made for this world, but we're living in this world. Only those who deeply suffer learn how to fully anticipate resurrection, both now and then. The writer of Psalm 88 knew God, but not the God revealed in Jesus Christ, whose greatest defeat and darkest hour turned out to be the greatest victory of the world, Christ's triumph, which means that when we draw near the grave, we can say, death, where is your sting? But we also can rise above our season of discontent because we know he hasn't abandoned us. Many don't relish wintertime, except the people that like to fight five hours worth of traffic to go play on the side of the interstate while you're froze to it, and the few that make it actually up to the summit. Death, in some ways, seems close at hand, and friends seem almost like enemies when we're in the winter of our heart and our soul. But as St. John of the Cross says, take hope, my friend, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And that's what births hope. That is what births hope. You know, I, I recognize that you are sitting here and you have your own season of winter. Now, some think winter is the greatest time ever. I love winter. I love cold. I grew up in heat and humidity. Bring on the snow and lots of it. But we all go through that winter where things feel cold and we feel disconnected because it's not as easy to get out and travel and go and enjoy. And we feel isolated and we feel abandoned. We feel withdrawn. We feel neglected. You, you know, um, I think one of our great challenges is is that we keep trying to pursue balance. You know, you hear this people all the time. I'm trying to find a balanced life. Well, can you explain to me what a balanced life looks like? I mean, who has a balanced life? David, King David, lived in a palace, and he also lived in a cave. He fought giants, and he fought his own family. So tell me how that's balanced. Nehemiah goes and he rebuilds a wall in 52 days with the help of the people in the city, but he's threatened with death. He probably didn't take much time to eat nor sleep. So tell me how balanced that life was. You can read all the self-help books and you can go to all the seminars and you can do all the stuff. Maybe instead of choosing to seek balance, maybe we need to find rhythm where we learn to move at the season we're in. Winter, though not easy, is a season. Winter of the heart is a season where maybe our activity slows down, where we reflect more on what God wants to do with us rather than what we want to do for God. Busyness is not a spiritual gift. 
And yet we were called to Sabbath to rest. Which, by the way, is maybe one of the most neglected commands of God. To just rest. Now rest doesn't mean sleep. Rest means drawing near to God and hearing what He wants to do within us. Because you can't go do for God if He's not doing for you in you. That's when we get out of balance. It's like a deep sea diver. You have the the weight of the water that wants to push you to the bottom. And yet you've put air in your equipment, in your suit, that wants to do what? It wants to force you back to the top. And you're trying to live in that balance of something wanting to push you down and something that wants to bring you up. And that's our life every day. There are things that want to push you down and there are things that want to push you up. Maybe in those seasons, instead of trying to fight what God is trying to do, maybe we sit and we just adore on the God that maybe is doing some of his greatest work while he calms us. And when you're anxious and things aren't going the way you think they should go, you become more anxious and you become more busy or more determined or more this, and maybe what you need to be determined about is just to rest and let God do his work. And that's hard. And sometimes it takes crisis or chaos to force us to step back and go, wait a minute, I don't think my body's supposed to be responding like this. And sometimes our bodies are pleading for us to surrender and to back away and to give up. Let go of the busyness and the worry sickness and the frantic pace of trying to find balance. Let me know how that balanced diet's working for you. They all sound great, and we get sold on them, but I think God is more into the rhythm of what he's created, the rhythm of change, the rhythm of seasons, the rhythm of life, the rhythm of the Spirit going before us and behind us, above us, below us, the Spirit of love and grace that washes us and holds us and moves us. And maybe maybe what we need to do as we take communion today, maybe we just need to, maybe we need to seek God, what are you doing in me that I can't do for myself? What are you wanting to do in me that I'm fighting you for? What what do you want to speak into me? And if your prayer is constantly, God, help me to do more, do more, do more, maybe he's trying to tell you, do less, do less, do less. Now, that doesn't mean be lazy. It means let him be your focus. Let him be your center. Let him, let him, let him. So let me pray for us, and we'll take communion and close out in worship. Lord, uh, I pray for each of us, Lord, that, God, as we're in the season of winter, we likely have people that are in the winter of their heart and soul. Lord, where it's cold and dark and painful and isolating, Lord, would you remind us that that you are not sleeping, you're not neglectful, that that you very well may be waiting for us to stop and let you do your great work within us.
to make us more in Christ's image. And so, Lord, however you want to meet us today, Lord, we, we receive the bread and the, and the cup as a reminder of your finished work, of your love for us. Lord, may we, may we find the rhythm of walking in step with you. In the name of Jesus, Lord. Amen. Let's have communion and worship.